You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends. Man, I've got just a wonderful guest, a, a person that I got the privilege of meeting over Zoom uh, several months ago, and we've become friends. Today's guest is Claire Steele. And uh, particularly for most of the world, quite honestly, you probably don't know Claire. Uh, but for those down under, a lot of people know Claire because, um, you know, I think everybody knows Compassion International, one of the largest uh, world relief organizations in the world. And what you may not be aware of is they have these huge chapters all over the world. And so Claire is the CEO of Compassion Australia. And um, as we met, uh, we've met through some of my work initially. Um, I've really just come to have massive respect for her leadership. Some of my favorite leaders are the people who just don't think they're naturally a leader. And so what I find is people like that, Claire, I, I guess I'd describe you as that way, is they come into organizations with such a fresh perspective and such a lack of pretense. So I asked Claire if she'd be willing to come on the show and she very reluctantly is like, okay, fine, I guess I'll come on. So Claire, welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety. Thanks, Steve. It is a reluctant, but very excited um, joining you this morning. <laughs> yeah. So let's kick off with just your background. Uh, that's one of the areas I wanted to explore. So many people find themselves in leadership in an unlikely way. I think you've shared some of that's your journey. Just tell us your journey into leadership. Yeah, I I'm actually was thinking through this today because I'm sharing with um, some Year 12 students later on. And I started my career, I guess, as an engineer. I studied uh, mechatronics, which is... Yeah, robotics, uh, for, right? Yeah, robotics, um, yeah. for those who are the, um, don't know, because I really love solving problems. And for me, robotics seemed really exciting. Uh, I'd read lots of Isaac Asimov. I'd seen movies. I thought, wow, who doesn't want to create some robots? Um, unfortunately, I've never created a robot. That's uh, one, one thing I hope to do one day. But what I discovered in engineering in particular and then the work I uh, went into was I'd love solving problems. And I love solving problems by bringing people together, ideas together, and just really thinking through how can we use all these things that we know together to make the solution better. And so that's been, I think, probably the only common thread through my whole career. Um, every role I'm in, it's about solving problems, but different problems. So I sort of went from uh, consulting to a financial institution and then um, ended up as a youth and children's worker, actually, with my husband. We job shared. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's lots of different problems there. They're not quite the IT and tech solutions, but you get to think through how you can share the gospel with families that have never heard and new and creative ways to do that. And then from there, I went to managing childcare centres and preschools in Australia. And from there to a women's foundation that we're really looking at how we could equip women to flourish in sharing the good news of Jesus. And so that was really exciting. And you're right, we actually, my husband and I had never heard of compassion until about five years ago. And the first step in that was uh, Matt was a minister in um, inner city, Sydney, and he received an email, I remember the day, he received an email asking if he wanted to go on a pastor's trip to see the work of Compassion. And he uh, forwarded it to me at work and he said, well, this all seems a little bit random. I can't really see how this would change what I do or my life or 
don't really have time, don't think should bother. And I just wrote back and said, oh, if that's what you think, but we're not very big risk takers, our family. Uh, we like to have control and we're pretty like stability. And I said, well, maybe this is something we should give a go. And so he went. Uh, he went to the Philippines and I journeyed along with him on the other side of the phone, which is really, really hard to do. Um, mm. I was at home. We have three children, so I was looking after them and working. And each night I'd chat to Matt. And for the first three or four days, I just hear his heart breaking and him at loss to know how to respond to these situations. He'd never seen poverty in this form before, and neither had I. And we got to a point, I think it was about a Thursday night, where he just sort of said, I don't think I can come home. And here I am sitting in Sydney with three children by myself thinking, oh, I think you better come home. <laughs> uh, but that was because he didn't know how to live his life in Australia now after what he'd seen. And he met a young man who had gone through the Compassion Program and was now working for um, Accenture, which is the organisation I started working for when I came out of college. And he was doing the exact same role that I did. And Matt just said to him, because the difference was I would go home to a beautiful house every night and have food to eat. This young man still would go home and live in a four-by-four-metre home and support his mum. And so Matt just sort of said to him, like, how do you live this life, this two totally different worlds of helping companies make more money and then going home to a place of great poverty. And he just said to Matt, well, I can only do what I can, I'm called to do at the moment. And at the moment that is to go to work, use my skills and gifts, come home, support my mum. And he still volunteered at one of the compassion projects on the weekend to help other children be able to see a future and hope and dream. And so that really inspired Matt. And he came home and he said, well, what have I got? I've got a church. I want to inspire them to care for these people. And I want to really think through how we can support the work of compassion. And so we did that. And that meant that we took someone from our church and our family back to the Philippines about a year later. Um, and and so I got to, yeah, yes. Um, so I got to experience firsthand that roller coaster journey that Matt had experienced. And it just broke my heart. Um, I remember walking through the streets of Cebu and there's children two and three uh, on the side of the road and they're begging or they're selling tiny things to try and get enough money. Uh, there's adults camatose on the side of the road from drug and alcohol addiction. You're walking through laneways where there's sewage running through just houses down either side. These houses are made of whatever could be found and they're tiny. Uh, you see children lucky to have a bowl of rice of food a day and walking kilometres to get water that I wouldn't even consider bathing in. And your heart just breaks for the hopelessness that's around you, but also then the hopelessness that's inside of you because this problem, I love fixing problems, this problem felt unfixable just you don't even know where to start and I, I just felt as I walked this great heaviness um, and hopelessness that descended upon me and it felt like it descended on the city that I was walking through and one of the days uh, that we're walking through Cebu I started to hear this sound and it's a sound that usually we hear in Australia but with lockdown we don't at the moment 
It's that sound of um, feet slapping on playgrounds, of children laughing, of balls, of uh, shouting at one another. It's the sound of a child's playground. And I could hear the sound, but all I could see was the hopelessness and a, a city just descending into disrepair. And so I'm, I've got this smile on my face because I love the sound, but I'm just I'm so confused. Mm. Then we turn a corner and we see a playground, but that's that's actually overselling it. It was just like this dirt rectangle with a battered basketball hoop at one end and some tables around the edge. And there's about 40 or 50 children here playing all manner of games, talking, laughing. And it felt like there was this little oasis of hope in this desert. And it just felt for the first time I felt joy for that week. And as we got close, I realised this was actually our destination. This was the church where the Compassion Project was. And it made me realise that it's not that you have to solve the whole problem, but that these bright spots in a city could have a ripple effect out through a city and then out through a region and a country and then hopefully the world. And it just felt that God's light was able to shine in an amazing way. And so I came to that moment of just loving the work that Compassion did in enabling churches to be all they could be in their communities. And so we came back to Australia and uh, I was like, okay, great, Matt, I agree with you now. Let's support Compassion most we can. And we kept sharing the story with our congregation and with people we met. And that was all fantastic and um, really easy to do. And then in about February the following year, we received an email as a Compassion supporter that the former CEO was retiring. I remember I ride to work, so I rode home from Sydney and said to Matt, oh, uh, the CEO's retiring, we need to pray for this because uh, this is an organisation we care deeply about. And, and he just said straight off the bat, I think you should apply for the role. And I was like, oh, just sort of laughed it off and kept going. <laughs> um, and But then because this meant huge change for us, uh, Matt was yeah. leading a, a church that we loved that we've been leading for 10 years. Uh, our children loved where we lived and it would mean moving. And this was a massive change for me. This was a much bigger role than I'd had. Um, but Matt just said, well, why don't we pray about it? Why don't you do what you do, read about where compassion's at, learn everything, think about what you could bring and we'll go from there. And so we did. And uh, four months later, I was um, offered the role of CEO of Compassion Australia, which still uh, spins me out a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in the timeline then, when were you offered that role? So we'd gone to the Philippines in uh, 2018, in October. I was offered the role in June 2019. Yeah. About eight months nine months before COVID really blew everything up, if my, my math is correct. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I, I want to dive into a few things here, Claire, but just as I'm listening to, like, you're such a vivid storyteller, the way your ability to put us on that street, just watching as you're watching, it's really profound. And I, I was just paying attention to what I was feeling as you were saying that. And I think for many of us who have a trip like that, 
we can come home, we can go through all that overwhelm and all, the, all of the guilt and the disparity, but at some point, we can make some kind of bargain with ourselves to say, well, I'm a local church pastor, for example, in my case, and so my vocation is here, and I should get my church to do more. But you have to come home as the CEO of a relief organization. You actually have an opportunity to move the needle. Um, this is a convoluted question. I'm, I'm somewhat infamous for asking complex questions. But I've interviewed a number of people in your kind of role before, like Christine Kane with her work yep. with A21 and uh, Rich Stearns from yep. World Vision, Jimmy Miato, you know, who you know well. And I really marvel at people who are on the front lines of this chipping away at a grinding, massive, overwhelming problem. What do you do to make sure that you're not burning out? What do you do to decide, okay, I've done enough for today? It's got to be incredibly overwhelming. Like even behind you, you know, we're not, the, the podcast is audio, but I'm looking at a, a, a large poster right behind you, which is a daily reminder for you of the kids you're serving. What, what do you do to manage that and to go in for the long haul? Yeah, it's actually something I've been thinking about lately. And I love that our organization is called Compassion. And I love that in the Gospels, we see that Jesus was moved with compassion. And that word alone, it calls you to feel and to actually enter into suffering with others. And so that's huge. And that's if you do that, it can be overwhelming. But I think as Christians, we're almost the only people that can enter into that because we know that it's not our job to fix the whole world and we know we can't. And we almost start from that position that we can't achieve what we want to achieve, but Jesus and God have. Uh, it's not even that they can, they have. The victory's already won and new creation will come. And so what we are, we're part of that journey towards new creation so I have to rest in, and this is hard, I have to rest in the fact that I can't actually solve everything, but I know that Jesus has. And I think that picture that I saw in Cebu, I was overwhelmed and I can't fix it, mm. but I'm not called to. I'm just called to do what I can do and I'm called to call others to that, but I'm not the one that is going to solve the problem. Um, disappointingly, I'd love to solve the problem. But to really move with compassion, we have to trust that Jesus has gone ahead of us. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me how often God calls us with our gifts and our shadow side into a role that it's, it's not about us, but the role itself puts pressure on our comforts. So the idea that God would call an engineer-minded person who most loves to fix something that really can't be fixed or, or at least not in our lifetime or maybe, but even if, if we could ever eliminate global poverty in our lifetime, that would be a miracle. It would be. What, what have you done to mitigate this, this need to, to manage and control and clean up with this overwhelming need? I, I think the question, what have you done? Um, I think it's a constant doing. Uh, I, I, I sit in meetings regularly frustrated that we can't do more and I have to keep remembering that every step that we do is moving forward. Mm. Uh, I, 
I, I think I will live with that tension my whole life that we haven't achieved what I want to achieve and we haven't um, we haven't solved global poverty. I mean, what's the best outcome for compassion? That I have to shut it down, that there's no right. more to fix. Uh, right, you're sitting that's around not a great place board. to be. Um, yeah. As an organisation, what's your outcome? I want to shut the organisation down because there's nothing left to do. And so I think I have to learn to live with that tension. Uh, and you've talked about to me, give myself the grace and that that I can't solve it. And that would just be a constant daily walk um, to live out. And yeah, it will be a challenge every single day. Yeah. So this was your first CEO role? Yes. Oh, God, goodness me. And then... In, in my opinion, it takes much longer to settle in than you think or than, than your team thinks. I don't mean you, Claire. I mean any new leader. You know, as, as you know, our church is facing a leadership transition. I've been here for 16 years. And as of the recording of this, we're down to two candidates for my wow. role. I know it's getting close and I'm, I'm feeling all the feels and trying to pay, pay attention to my, you know, my own journey. But the last staff meeting with, with my staff, I, I had a word about uh, just setting expectation. You know, if like both both candidates, we have two great candidates, yeah. by the way, and I'm mindful that they might be listening, which is weird, but th- they're both fantastic. Neither one of them have been a lead pastor before. Yeah. And just saying to my staff, like, you might need to give them two or three years. Yeah. To, I mean, they'll lead well. It's not that they don't know how to lead, but to settle into this role it takes a while. So you you had only a number of months and then COVID just blew everything up. Yeah. Tell it, take us back to that kind of March of 2020 and what was going on in you and, and in yeah. your passion. It was interesting. So I started in January 2020 and the week I started, we were already asking questions. Uh, compassion usually flies people around the world quite often. And our team was already asking questions about, uh, do we divert travel so that we're not flying through China? So COVID was already on the agenda. And I remember March 2020, I was at a Hillsong Colour Conference. Uh, Thousands of women gathered. And there was beginning to get these hints that uh, life in Australia was going to change quickly. And that this, and it has been, this is the last large conference I've been to uh, in the last Mm -hmm. two years. And even at that conference, people were not sure, could you hug one another? Could you shake hands? Is it okay to sit next to each other? There's already that tension of, we don't know what this is going to look like. And a week later, Australia shut down. Um, And when I say shut down in Australia, it's really shut down. It's um, radius of five kilometres. It's you don't go out, school's offline. Lockdown in Australia is severe. And, yeah, let me let me just jump in here, yeah. Claire. You know, obviously, all my family are still back home in Perth, and yes. for those for for the non Aussies, um, Western Australia, my home state in Perth, has got quite a bad reputation right now in Australia because the premier, the equivalent in America of a governor, is so strict in Western Australia. Um, so my mum has quite a, a serious illness, and she has to drive six hours to the city to get treatments. You know, once a quarter or so. But she has to have a letter from a doctor because the police yeah. pull her over because she's driven more than 20 kilometers. Yeah. So, yes, just to give context for our listeners, Australia is taking lockdown extremely seriously. Yes. I think it's I'll so be allowed great. to fly to Colorado uh, to see you before I could fly to see your mum. <laughs> that's, that's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. So, that started. And 
um, obviously that was a massive impact for us at Compassion because we work through churches and we work through church presentations and we as an executive team had to make a decision. It is possible and we didn't know the global economic um, impact this would have, but you were guessing it could be quite large. Uh, we've got businesses shut down around the country and so we had to make a fairly um, drastic budget of a, a, a huge reduction in funds. Uh, and as most organisations, our um, our biggest cost is our team. Oh. And I think one of the things that was easy um, to make was we knew that the impact on COVID would be hard for people in Australia, but it would be even harder for those living in poverty. And that's played out. We're seeing up to 100 million more people return to extreme poverty. So if we, you start from that point, you know that the thing that we can do is get as much funds to the field as possible during this season. And so that was our decision point. We need to get as many funds as possible to the field, which means it has a huge flow-on impact to what we have to do in Australia. We have to cut back our expenses and we have to cut back and be more efficient in how we've done things. And because we usually work through churches, we have to change the way we work. And so there was huge implications for what that meant. And your comment about um, coming into an organisation and how long it takes to settle in. Uh, I'm an introvert and I love talking to people one-on-one in small groups. I don't particularly love standing up front and I really don't love Zoom and talking to 150 people over Zoom. And so while we had massive organisational changes we had to make, I'm leading an organisation that doesn't know me. And so that combined has made it a hard two years. Um, how do you get, how do you let people know you over Zoom? Um, I can't visit all our teams. I've never been able to visit our WA team. And a lot of the other teams I wasn't able to visit um, for very much time at all. The last time our whole team has been together was March 2020. And so we're coming up to, it will be two years before we all come together again. And so it has been a difficult um, road. God and our supporters have been absolutely crazily generous. And not just in Australia, but Compassion Internationally hasn't seen a drop in funds. Uh, we've been able to increase how we support families and children. We're not a disaster relief organisation, but we've been able to distribute over 15 million multi-week food packs because the churches on the field, like the 8,000 churches we work with, have taken food and they've walked and they've driven everywhere to every family. And I think that's the story I want to share and that's the story I, I want my team to get excited about. We've been part of enabling that through the changes we made, but churches on the front line, they're the ones that have made more change and more sacrifice than we have as well. Yeah, it's really poignant to hear you talk about coming in to lead an organization where the stakes are so high and and you've not had the opportunity to just build the natural trust that comes through bumping shoulders, just yeah. bumping into each other in the hallway or making a particular visit to another field. And it just adds, and people are already anxious about change yep. and then anxiety, COVID. So you end up having this... Um, compounded anxiety in a, in a team of good people 
At some point, Claire, I think every uh, leader young in their role hits a wall where they wonder if they can go on. Was that the case for you? There was a moment actually in January this year um, where I just wondered if what I thought was the path ahead maybe was actually not correct. Um, I, I'd come in and I thought I'd seen fairly clearly where we wanted to go, but maybe that wasn't right and maybe what we needed to do is different. And so I think that then you begin to question whether you are the right person because I was quite sure this is where we should go. And as a leader, you basically, you take big bets, don't you? You, If this this is where you think we should go, and it wasn't just my thoughts, it was we'd, we'd spent lots of time talking and listening. But if this wasn't the right path, then maybe I wasn't the right person. So, yeah, it's hard to to lead in that way, to make those big calls if you're not certain that's the right way to move. Yeah, and with an engineering background, you come into leadership from a, a different point of view. It, it's it would probably be typical to see a different kind of leader and say, "Oh, like you mentioned, you're not you'd prefer to not be upfront in front of groups versus one on one." What have you seen that God has used you to do that's unique that uh, a more stereotypical upfront leader can't do? That's a very good question. Something that. Um, one of my favourite things to do is um, pull lots of things together and think of solutions and ways ahead. And uh, one of the things that I'm so excited I get to be part of and actually pinch myself regularly is that I've been part of building global strategy for compassion. And uh, I get to be part of an, a group of CEOs that come together and just sort of throw things around and think through where we're going and I love that because you start to shape a future that maybe wasn't possible and you start to bring all these different gifts. I have an amazing colleague in the UK who has all these gifts I don't do have and has all these different perspectives and I love hearing what he brings. And then um, my colleague in Canada, she's um, extraordinary as well. And so you hear all these perspectives and then you go away and usually for me it's on my bike ride home. Just all these things sort of percolate and they come together and then you start to go, ah, oh, so all these things could come together in this way. Uh, and, and that, for me, I love that. It excites me no end. And then to think, how then do I develop people to use their gifts and skills to build out this future together? So they're the two things that make me most excited about my role. Yeah, I love that, Claire. And obviously, you know, for our listeners who are getting to know you maybe for the first time, I, I've known you for some time now. And um, what what I love about this is you have this amazing ability of vision and execution. And there's definitely a lot of leaders that love to be visionary, but they they can't build anything. You know, they, they make you cry, but nothing really changes. And then, of course, these more tactical leaders that they're very clean. But but um, I think I what I want to, I guess I'm saying this for our, our listeners I find when you talk about a visionary leader, you're picturing somebody who can light up the hearts of 3,000 people in a room. I think vision is much more simple. I think it's when you say it, I can see it. I think that's all vision is. If you say it, I can see it, then it's vision because I can see it. And whether that's thousands of people rying or... but, 
But when you talk about that first trip you took, Matt's second trip, your first trip, like we were there. We were just right there with you. That's vision. And so I, I think I, I love that you are leading this organization with clear, like it's very clear vision. And then everything is ordered under what matters most, which is resourcing these incredible people of faith and on you know in, in conditions that would probably do most of us in, and yet they're thriving and shining. Yeah, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about if do you see yourself that way as a visionary leader, or how does that strike you? I'm actually going to take you back to Cebu, um, and a few minutes after we. Uh, walk through that playground. And at this stage, I'm wearing a crazy hat. I'm wearing necklaces, have children running around me. And we're um, led up um, some stairs to uh, a stage um, and a hall. And it's boiling hot. It's humid. We're sitting on plastic chairs. Uh, There's huge noise. There must be like 100, 150 people in this hall. It's echoing. But then all of a sudden, it all drops. The noise all drops. And what happens is we walk on... um, Five women walk onto the stage and they stand there for a moment in silence and then all of a sudden, um, one by one, they hold up signs describing who they are and their words like addicted, unworthy, unwanted, discarded. And at this time, I don't know how to react. I've just had this moment where I feel like there's hope in the city and I walk into a, into a room where words that I would hope never describe anyone are displayed for all to see. Mm. And they stand there in silence and there's silence throughout the room uh, for 20 seconds. And then all of a sudden they turn over words that now describe them. And they're words like redeemed, loved, worthy and That's the vision I hold in my head Mm. when I'm leading our organisation because these women, and when I have to speak and I'm nervous, I remember them because these women don't have a voice, Mm. but they're the vision of what we want to create. And we had the great joy of walking through the community with one of these women later on. And the community that I thought was so broken and hopeless, she started to, to show me the light that was coming into the community. And she started to talk about her friends and how they um, had changed their lives by doing things. She showed me this Christmas tree they'd made out of plastic bottles because they wanted to share the joy of Christmas with their community. And so she has this vision for her community and she's working it out step by step. And so whenever I think through what is the vision for Compassion Australia, I hold her in my mind and think about how do we start to build the community in our team and in Australia that starts to be lights and starts to show the light that is happening in these communities around the world. So I hold that in my head to try and communicate the vision I want to bring. I think you you talk about, like you talk with such clarity about why what you do matters. Um, how How hard is it in the day-to-day operations to keep that front and center? How easy is it to get distracted into the details? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm a detailed person. Um, I like to know a lot of things. There's two questions in that, I think. How hard is it to keep that in focus? And then how, how do you not get frustrated when you're not achieving what you think you need to achieve to 
for that vision. Um, I think one of the things actually Jimmy Mulatto talks about doing is um, watching the stories from the field that we have. And so we've made a change recently. We, we meet together as a staff every week, currently online, um, but we show a story from the field every week. And we have um, national directors who, who about every six months share stories of what's been occurring. And so we start the day with that and then really start praying for them. Uh, I think it's keeping that at the forefront and and hearing that we're part of a bigger global family that is working on this and it's not just about all that we do, I think that keeps us making sure that we're really thinking through the impact of our actions rather than the detail of our actions. You know, so many folks nowadays, they're looking for something to help them uh, make sense of themselves and and try to get unstuck in some patterns. And obviously, tools like the Enneagram have been very popular nowadays. Um, I, I just want to make the case that systems theory, it's not a magic bullet and uh, it's certainly not um, the only solution, but it is a fresh way to understand yourself because it forces you to notice your anxiety. And my theology, I believe that it's actually our chronic anxiety that most blocks us from being aware of God. And so earlier in January, I formed an online community called Capable Life. You can visit it at capablelife.me. And it's nothing more and nothing less than a community of people. As of the recording of this, we have about 400 members from 16 different countries. We have pastors, nonprofit leaders, we have medical professionals, teachers, parents, and missionaries. Those are kind of our bread and butter people that use our site. And they're all on the same journey together. They're trying to make sense of not just the anxiety that they carry, but the anxiety that they notice in their teams. The simple idea of systems theory is if you can be a calm presence, you can help your team be better. So for those of you looking for a tool, it's not the only tool. I couldn't even say if it's the best tool, but it's helped a lot of people. And if you'd like to check it out, you can go to www.capablelife.me um, and you can learn more there. Now, Claire, uh, you've listened to this podcast, so you know where we're headed. And my understanding is there's a perhaps even a wager among some of your staff <laughs> on how you'll manage the gauntlet of anxiety questions. Definitely is. So, <laughs> yeah. Let me take a look here at my set of questions. Um, I think... The journey of spiritual growth in leadership is when you get to the end of yourself and then you get on the other side of it. I wonder if you would tell us a time where you really felt like you got to the end of yourself and you had to depend on God to get to the other side. Yeah, I remember the time actually. It was um, in July 2020 and I was sitting in a room with my executive team and we were hearing some of the reports from the field and um, some of the statistics from the World Health, Health Organization. And we'd also then just looked at what needed to be done in our organization. And I remember when I got the role, um, thinking in my head and praying, God, this is going to take all I've got. 
um, and I need you, it's going to take everything. And I remember sitting in that room and just going, oh, Lord, this is more than I've got. Mm. Um, and just that realisation that, wow, I, I really, I'm, I'm stepping out in trust here because I've got so much and I can see so far, but I can't see far enough. And, yeah, it, it's not the prayer you really want to be praying when you're in the middle of an executive team meeting and trying to work out the path ahead. <laughs> but it actually is a prayer that I'm trying to pray each day. Lord, make me um, humble and self-aware when um, what I have is not enough. And so I lean on you and I lean on others um, to bring what what this organisation needs at the moment. Mm. And then, you know, we all carry our family of origin into the workplace, whether we want to or not. Um, what might be a family trait that you have that's really helped you in leadership? And what might be a trait that's been a liability or, or gotten in the way? Yeah, I think from my family, I've learned um, great resilience. Uh, it's a very Australian trait, I think. Um, we, mm. we always have that saying, she'll be right, mate, or like, it's really just get on with life. Um, leave all the feelings behind, just keep moving forward. And I, I think that's how I was um, taught growing up. And uh, it is a great trait. Uh, you do learn to process and move ahead. It's also my biggest weakness um, because sometimes you move ahead without processing or without being aware of how it's impacted you and others, the situation. And so I think you can create barriers and boundaries around yourself that don't let people know you. Um, also don't let you um, be who you are in the moment. You're just so busy moving forward. Um, the saying, she'll be right, mate, is basically disregarding everything that's happened and just keep going. Yeah, I like that. That's true. Yeah, it's. It, it, I, I often have to explain to people, you know, living in America that that this laid back thing that Aussies all have, we all have it. part of it there's something true about it and it's also shtick like it's both yeah it's also a um what do you like a learned behavior to manage rather than actually process what's really going on yeah and even a a barrier you put between you and others yeah yeah it, it is a very learned behavior yeah one of the things we're doing on the show this season is really looking at the inner critic, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And we're inviting people to really take notice of their own inner critic and then compare that message with the gospel. Um, and so this would be the question for you, Claire, if you'd fill in the blank for me. Uh, what if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What would be the blank for you? Yeah, uh, this is a really difficult question though I find the inner critic work uh, I love how you talk about actually having to write down what your inner critic says and so I think my inner critic says quite often that was a fluke you're never going to be able to do that again um, and if you're not careful someone's going to find out how much of a fraud you are and so I think for me the blank is if I knew how much God loved me in real reality and in um, a sort of a physical way I would be able to see that the person he created is not a fluke or a fraud and be able to live out um, a more more full life um, and more fully who he created me to be. Mm. 
Well, then to that end, when is a time recently where you felt most fully and completely loved? Mostly with my family. Um, I have uh, three children and married to Matt for um, twenty over 20 years now. And there's moments uh, in our family where, especially Matt, he, he dissolves into fits of laughter that he can't control. And it's usually over mm. some crazy game or or our boys love dancing and singing. It might be them doing that. And it's those moments where it, there's almost like you can't talk because everyone's just enjoying being together and enjoying the differences of each member of the family. I think they're the moments that you feel most loved and most truly who you are um, together in this amazing group of people that God's given you to journey through life with. Oh, man, I love that answer. Well, folks, I, I, I just got to say, one of my favorite things about the kingdom of God is how pervasive it is. It's, it's everywhere. And there are so many people of goodwill who are really sharp. Um, in my own church, you know, we, we reach the intellectual skeptic. That's part of who God's called us to reach in our city. And the older I get, the more brazen I get about challenging the skeptic that think that Christians are not intelligent. You know, that we're, we, you have to be stupid to believe in a resurrected Jesus. And what I found to be true is some of the sharpest thinkers in the world are doing work for the kingdom of God, for God's glory, for the good of the world. And uh, I'm just thrilled that for many of you, you got to meet Claire Steele, who in my opinion is one of those. Claire, who is the CEO of Compassion Australia. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Steve. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.